Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. After weeks of volatile trading, U.S. markets seem to be rallying in the green, actually, in all three major indices. But what does this latest activity suggest, and how long will this bear market actually last? We're joined again today by Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his Global Macro and Markets update as he breaks down what this latest jump in the market means and what it could also mean for the Fed's next move. Among other insights shared today with host Pamela Ritchie, Urian believes this latest jump is just part of a zigzag pattern of the market trying to find equilibrium. Among other insights shared today with host Pamela Ritchie, Urian believes this latest jump is just part of a zigzag pattern of the market trying to find equilibrium. He says the market is either in price discovery mode or trying to find balance. He also believes the market's current situation will push gold to be a significant force within central bank bond markets. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on October 17, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. What is happening today? What what is this? Today is just uh, um, the the we're doing the zigzag of, of of the zigzag, and it's been like that for a few weeks. Remember, uh, was it early last week or the week before? We had a two day six percent rally, then we gave most of it back, and then last week on Thursday after the very hot CPI report, you know, we were down two percent, then up three percent for a five percent move. Uh, and then a lot of people were like, oh, you know, that's that's got to be the bottom. Look at that reversal. And then the next day we gave it all back again. And then today we're we're gaining it back again. So I, I think it's it's a sign that uh, the market's trying to find some equilibrium. You know, if you think about how the markets work, they uh, the you know, the market either is in a price discovery mode or it is in some form of equilibrium. Right. So when when there are times where the market is just kind of orderly and and uh, and you know somewhat calm. That means that price discovery has been fulfilled, and until the next piece of information comes in, the markets are 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 kind of uh, in some sort of equilibrium. Obviously, the last nine months and especially the last few weeks, that price discovery has kind of been pretty violent. And so I think we're at a point where people are looking at the hot CPI report. You know, six point six percent. On the core CPI, that is a new high for the cycle, <clears throat> but it doesn't take away the base effects that everyone sees coming. And pretty much everything, everyone, even the most ardent bear, will, will you know sees that base effects means that the rate of change of the inflation is going to come down, and maybe the the road from eight to four is going to be relatively quick, just because of the way the math works. And maybe it's going to be much harder to get from four to two, but that's kind of like 
a you know a question for for down the road. So I, I think there's a sense again starting to be found that we know what the numbers are. If, if the data is more sticky than we w wanted them to be or expected them to be, it's going to reduce the path of the Fed in terms of how much uh, how how fast it has to go up, uh, and then how quickly it can pivot back down towards what would be considered a, a neutral policy. So the markets are trying to just grapple with all of those moving pieces, um, and that's why we're seeing um, the kind of volatility that we're seeing. And, you know, we could be up two and a half today. Maybe we'll be down two tomorrow. I, I don't know. But, but you know, th this is the, the new landscape in the aftermath of the CPI report. So now the market is expecting the Fed to go all the way to 5%. I mean, just a few months ago, that number was, you know, three and a half, and then it went to four, and then it went to four and a half. And of course, as, as we know, and we've talked about this, you know, a lot in, the, in recent months, when that terminal rate goes up, you know, another 50 basis points, it has a direct impact on the valuation, obviously for bonds, uh, you know, that as does the terminal rate goes, so does the, the one-year and the two-year bill and the five-year note. But it also has an impact on equity valuation because, you know, when you look at valuation, at least I do, I look at the discounted cash flow model, and uh, in which case I, I discount future cash flows using a cost of capital. And so every time the Fed moves the goalposts, as they've done yet again, uh, the, the present value of future cash flows goes down because the cost of capital is going up. And so that's kind of this constantly moving target that the market's grappling with. But then it goes down, goes down too much. It gets oversold. And for instance, last week on Thursday during that big reversal day, there were a lot of technical things going on. Uh, investors were buying put options and then, uh, and then the market turned around. So those put options had to be hedged. And then you had this huge upside move. So oftentimes it's, there's less than meets the eye and that what you're seeing is kind of technical noise and not the collective voice of the investing public around the world saying, okay, the market is now cheap. Sometimes there is, it's, it's more technical than that. So when we look into the, the CPI just a little bit further, and, and you know, I think most people joining you here today have, have been reading about it, but the services side is still there. It's pushing things forward. Um, we sort of know that other parts of the inflation story actually have rolled over, and you mentioned how quickly that could go. What do you see on the services side? Well, so so yes, it is. So the the good side has rolled over, um, and you saw the headline number. You know, was in line, and you know we see what happened. What's happened to the price of oil or copper or used car prices? I mean, so that part is coming down as the industrial part of the economy clearly has slowed down a lot. Um, but the services side is proving to be sticky, and that of course is of great concern to the Fed because. Um, I, I think what the Fed is trying to do is it's trying to hammer the message home uh, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to rein in inflation because they recognize presumably that if inflation expectations become unanchored or entrenched like they did in the 1970s, they take on a whole life of their own, right? And, you know, back then, of course, we had cost of living adjustments for the unions, you know, back then a quarter of the labor force was unionized. So that became kind of what we call a, a, a wage price spiral, right? So just one feeds into the other and then it becomes very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, so I think the Fed probably looks at that and say, we need to nip this in the bud right now. But having said that, um, 
a lot of these things, even on the services side, are, are very lagging indicators, right? I mean, rents is, is one is one culprit. Um, and if you think about it, if you just signed a new lease, you know, three months ago at a high rate, um, it's going to take nine months for that rate to be adjusted down if, if indeed it turns out that demand is less. So the Fed has to be very careful not to be chasing lagging indicators um, and, and driving policy, you know, too much towards the restrictive side. But it's a very difficult job, and that's why the Fed looks at financial um, conditions. Financial conditions are a window into the real economy, but through the financial markets. Um, so, you know, the Fed's mandate, as we all know, uh, is uh, its dual mandate is full employment and price stability. And it's beyond ironic, actually, that, you know, for the past 15 years or so, inflation was not a problem at all. If anything, it was an opposite problem. It was too low in the, in the, in the eyes of the Fed. So um, the Fed could always be focused on keeping uh, employment as full as possible. And certainly that was a major theme during the COVID days uh, where, you know, it wanted to bring everyone in the boat and, and, you know, get the unemployment rate down as far as possible. Now it's the opposite. Now the Fed is, is literally saying, well, maybe not literally, but it's, it's saying in so many ways that they want the unemployment rate to go up in order to, uh, to push inflation down. So ironically, the Fed's kind of solving for people to lose their jobs. It sounds very harsh to put it that way, but it, in, in a sense, that's kind of the, the policy goal because inflation, if that becomes a long-term problem, then that's even worse than unemployment in, in many ways. Uh, so, but anyway, um, what I was saying was that, you know, knowing that it's dealing with lagging indicators, right? The unemployment rate and the inflation rate are both lagging indicators. Uh, it's looking at, you know, raising the cost of capital uh, and, and in the process, tightening financial conditions. And I did a simple experiment, you know, a number of months ago um, where I said, okay, let's say credit spreads go up 300, uh, the real 10-year goes up 250, nominal yields go up 450, the dollar goes up 15%, and the S&P goes down 30%. Uh, it actually turned out to be very easy to reverse engineer this financial condition. Those five conditions um, have all been met, and wow. they have produced exactly the kind of tightening that we see. So, you know, the glass half full here is that you know the the Fed is is you know is you know it can be kind of a mission accomplished thing. And if you look at the tips market, and again, the tips market could have all kinds of problems with it. Um, in terms of, you know, the Fed owns a third of that market and maybe the price signal is not what we would like it to be. But according to the tips market, inflation is going to fall to two and a half percent very, very quickly. And if that's the case, the Fed could be very close to, again, that kind of mission accomplished and uh, the market will, will sense that. And, you know, the market's very, very sensitive to um, changes in rate. Uh, this is the model that I've been using for a number of months with you here on Mondays. And, you know, if you look at the, the 10 year, the, sorry, the two year nominal yield, treasury mm -hmm. yield, and the 10 year real yield, those are very powerful drivers for the forward PE ratio in the S&P. So and, you know, on, the bad news is it's projecting that the PE should be down at 13 and a half and we're only at 15.2. So that's been a, a moving target all year. But on the other hand, you know, if there is a sense that, okay, maybe the Fed doesn't have to go to five, maybe it only has to go to four and a half, um, that orange line will quickly go up uh, by a lot. And I think that's well, let, why. Let's ask, let's have you tell us how powerful that could be, because I was yeah. going to ask you something else. But I mean, 
that is sort of the question. Like, what what sort of juice is there behind that that yeah, narrative? Yeah, that there there's a lot of juice, and I think when when we see the kind of big moves uh, on an intraday basis, just like we've seen today and the last couple of weeks, a lot of it comes from that, right? So we have earnings, of course, like the PE is only as good right. as the E, and earnings season is is now getting underway, and we'll see if the earnings numbers hold up or not. But the PE side is a very powerful driver. And, um, and you know, if it, like, and, and from my perspective, kind of a contrarian view is that the goalposts have now been moved so far to the restrictive side of the spectrum, uh, like 5%. I mean, you know, we were at zero <laughs> a year ago. Zero to five is a 500 basis point move. The 500 basis point move, not even, and, and that's before counting the effects of quantitative tightening, which by my estimates add about another 100 basis points to it. Um, and you can see that during the pandemic, you know, the Fed got, uh, had never been this accommodative before. And now, uh, based on the projected Fed funds rate and the effects from quantitative tightening, and assuming that the TIPS markets are right, which is a huge assumption, I, I grant you that, uh, we are, the pendulum is going to swing all the way to significantly restrictive. Um, and so, you know, the glass half empty, look at that is that you look at the past, you look at the past, at other times that the Fed has gone that far above neutral, and guess what? We had a recession follow every time. But the glass half full is that at this point, expectations have been set for such a hawkish policy response that if for any reason the Fed can go less than that, right? Let's say if inflation does roll over next month, uh, then all of a sudden you have that kind of that highly convex um, elasticity of all of a sudden the two-year node goes from four and a half to four, that's going to be good for several PE points. And then all of a sudden the market re-rates higher. And uh, that's where the equilibrium is, right? So if inflation's at two, uh, the 10-year yield should be at, you know, whatever, two and a half. If inflation's at three, it should be at three um, or three and a half. Um, and you can see how a year ago we were in the orange uh, dot. And I remember you and I were talking Honestly, a lot about really, this thing. Yeah, happened? so that, that was financial repression at work, right? The Fed was buying mm -hmm. $120 billion a month in bonds, and it was pushing real rates down to artificially low levels. Um, and we had likened it to, like, you know, pushing a beach ball down under underwater. It doesn't tend to stay there very long. And lo and behold, we are now all the way on the top part of that chart, and I would argue that real rates are more positive than they really should be based on this equation here. And that's a long way of saying that if real rates were to reset back to kind of their normal uh, equilibrium on the basis of inflation expectations, which are coming down, then you know you could argue that the 10-year yield should be go should go from four down to three percent. That hundred basis points, if it were to happen, is worth probably five PE points, right? So it's a very elastic thing. And, 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 you know, it would be, and, and normally I wouldn't be so interested in this, but because expectations have been set so far to now the hawkish extreme, uh, that it doesn't take much for those expectations to get kind of re-rated back down. And then you could see, you know, a big reversal in the stock market. So that's why my theme has been, it's way too late to be super bared up here because all you need is that one little pivot uh, from the Fed. And, and by pivot, I don't mean that the Fed's going to go from tightening to easing. It just means they're going to say, or they're going to they're gonna hint 
at that maybe five is too far and four and a half is plenty or something like that, or they'll finally get some relief on the CPI reports, um, and then all of a sudden the expectations get reset, and then the PE gets reset higher, and then all of a sudden maybe we've fallen as much as we have to. And um, and it's interesting, um, if we can go to slide 18 for a moment, you know, we another fan favorite, of course, has been our 1940s analog, which you and I have been looking at since literally March of 2020. The next slide, 1946 to 1948 analog, was tweeted by Urian on October 17th. Um, and that continues to play out as well, but that also kind of hints at the notion that maybe we've seen most of the declines. And as you, meant, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, we, we've, we've discounted 85% of a bear market being down 28%, and an average bear market being down 33%. Uh, so we've, we're, you know, we're, we could be in the eighth or ninth inning here. And if you look at the 1940s analog, you know, there's obviously many things different about the 1940s. You know, demographically it's different. That was, of course, a war. Uh, but but back then we had that fiscal monetary cocktail, that policy cocktail, if you will, and it was highly potent, just like the one during COVID has been. And then, uh, you know, when the war ended, we had kind of the hangover phase and we had, a, you know, we had uh, briefly, we had 20% inflation in the U.S. That's in the bottom panel there. Uh, the S&P fell about 30% all in all. Uh, the chart shows 26, 27%, but that's on a closing basis. On an intraday basis, the market fell 30%. On a real basis, it was 46% just because inflation was so high. Uh, but, but as you can see, we're kind of at the levels where the bear market went as far as it was going to go. Uh, now, it required a lot of patience before the next bull market resumed. That took several years of bouncing around. And I don't know that we're going to do that, you know, in, in, in this case. But but again, it, it remains a pretty good analog. And, and, you know, if we think back to the Fed and whether the Fed made a policy error this time around by not tightening policy soon enough, uh, I think, you know, it, when the history books are, are written about this cycle, I think we'll find that what the Fed's policy error was, if, if we can call it that, it was that maybe it underappreciated the potency of, of the, the fiscal component in that fiscal monetary cocktail, because that's usually not how, mm -hmm. the, how the policy response works, right? We have to literally go back 80 years to the 1940s to get a similar uh, combination of fiscal and monetary policy. So the Fed obviously could not foresee Russia invading Ukraine and this no. and that. Uh, but but in re I think, you know, when we look back, maybe the Fed should have seen the inflation coming from the fiscal side and therefore not tighten policy sooner, but at least not, um, not kept the, the, it so dialed towards loose policy for right. as long. And, and, you know, if I can use a little personal analog, you know, when I'm when I'm on the highway um, driving to my home, oh, I live in the city, so I don't drive on the highway to my home, but hypothetically speaking, um, you know, if I see that my exit is coming on the highway, I'll take my foot off the gas pedal and I'll kind of coast, and by the time the exit arrives, I'm going 40 miles an hour and I just take the exit. If instead I, I gunned it and stayed at 100 miles an hour, not that I would go that fast, but then I would have to slam on the brakes at the last minute to, t to make the exit. And in a way, the Fed kind of, that's what the Fed did. By, by, not, uh, by not letting it coast towards neutral, it now has to slam on the brakes and do basically too far, too much too late. And, and that does create 
the risk of a policy error on the on the over tightening side. So that's uh, kind of how I see how I see this. I like that one. And I, I, when I read your note, that was one that particularly stuck with me. Lots of questions coming in. So let's get to just a couple of them here, um, as many as we can. So this is someone writing in saying, seen a number of articles uh, on liquidity drying up, you know, in the US, the treasury market particularly. Can you sort of comment on that? Are there implications? What what do you think? There is a narrative. Yeah, no, it's it's a it, it's a great question, and we can go to slide twenty. And that chart, global monetary policy, was also tweeted on October seventeenth. Um, and we're seeing this especially on the bond side, even though I'm uh, we're about to show the 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 MSCI World Equity Index. But you know, the, the, I liken it to Hotel California, right? You can check in anytime you like, but you can never check out. And the the the, mon, the the central banks, not just the Fed, but around the world, and we see this play out in the UK, um, they've become such a big part of the financial markets, right? We've had this, uh, I guess it's called hyper-financialization, where the central banks become a huge player in, in the functioning of the bond market. And now all of a sudden the central banks is like, you know what, we need to tighten policy because inflation is a problem, so we're, we're out of here. You know, you guys figure it out on, on your own. And it and it doesn't work that way. And so here you see um, just a, the central bank's collective balance sheet as a percent of GDP overlaid against the the ACWI. And you can see that obviously they've been very much correlated. Um, so what we're finding is that the central banks are trying to disengage from the bond markets because they're tightening, um, and it's not working because the bond markets are not liquid enough. Um, and, and a case in point, of course, is the UK guilt market and the Bank of England had to actually end up buying bonds. You know, they won't admit that it's QE and it's not QE. It's an intervention to, uh, to, uh, to get the, the, the liquidity side functioning again. But it's pretty ironic that the Bank of England is, is raising rates while at the same time buying assets. I mean, that's completely, you know, that, that, it doesn't make any sense, right? It, may, it makes your head kind of like bend. Um, and so it does bring me to um, to the, the possibility that down the road, uh, that central banks are just, they're gonna have to remain a permanent feature of the bond markets because debt levels are too high. You know, the overall debt level, household, financial, corporate, government, you know, for the U.S., the Europe, Japan, I'm sure Canada is up there as well. They're about 300 percent of GDP and rising very rapidly. Japan takes the cake at 422 percent of GDP. And guess what? Nobody can afford higher interest rates when that happens. So I do think that financial repression, uh, artificially suppressed interest rates or bond yields, the way the Bank of Japan, of course, has been doing for years and the way the Fed did back in the 1940s, um, I, I think that's going to be a permanent feature just because there's too much debt. When we look at Japan's debt, which is on the right, right? So it's government yeah. debt, it's 225% of GDP. Of course, as we know, the Bank of Japan is doing yield curve control. It is defending a, a yield cap of 0.25%. And you can see that the Bank of Japan's assets are up to now 134% of GDP. But for the last 10 years, the debt service uh, cost as a percent of GDP has been basically stable at 4%. So that's the game in Japan is keep the debt service cost um, stable. And the way to do that is by buying up all the debt. And last week, there were four days in a row where the JGB market did not have a single trade. Now, 
Imagine that happening in England, in the US, in Europe, in Canada, down the road. The US is on the left there. Um, you know, it, it seems outlandish to think that that could happen, but I don't think it's outlandish at all. And so I, I think to the question of liquidity and market functioning and, and the plumbing side of the bond market, uh, this is what happens when the biggest player in town leaves, uh, is that you don't have much of a market left, and that's why ultimately these central banks will have to come back in. So QT from the Fed, I think, is something that will will have a finite time uh, time left, and that the Fed will have no choice but to get reinvolved at some point. Dare I ask sort of the political ramifications of all of this? Uh, there is a midterm coming up. I don't know if we want to get yeah. into all that. Probably not. But um, in any case, does it tip the balance to sort of the well, political well, and the fiscal side of things? Um, it, it could, uh, and not so much for the midterms because uh, the Republicans are expected to take mm -hmm. the House, maybe not the Senate. Yeah. So we'll we'll have enough gridlock in the next couple of years that not much is going to happen. But if you think of it this way, let's say you look at the mm -hmm. CBO projections for what where the debt level is going to go in the U.S. and it's off the charts, right? That's that to GDP is 128 percent going to 200 plus percent. Now mm -hmm. imagine that. Uh, the 10-year yield, which is now at four, just imagine for the sake of argument, it goes to six. And and at 6%, we're funding 200% debt to GDP. That's going to be a political nightmare because you imagine how much of the budget is going to get consumed by debt service, right? So you can see a, a moment in time down the road, not not today or tomorrow, but down the road, where there'll be a lot of pressure on the Fed to do exactly what I just you know, described in terms of financial repression. So if the Fed is very hawkishly independent, saying we can't do that, uh, you, can, you can imagine that there's going to be political pressure for the Fed to bend, just like it was forced to back in the 1940s. So that's kind of how I think about the political angle, but it's not something that's imminent uh, in, my, in my view. Uh, just quick, uh, quick questions here. This is interesting. You know, The question on sort of gold being overvalued, perhaps, but there does seem to be evidence that central banks are in there buying gold. Um, it's part of their holdings. What, what do you think? So gold on the basis of the real rate model, right? So if you look at the TIPS real yield, the 10-year TIPS real yield, that has been a very good indicator of the relative or of the fair value for gold. Uh, it's worked for a number of years. So real rates go down, gold goes up, real rates go up, gold goes down. Very, very simple. Uh, on the basis of these very, very dramatic rise in real yields in the last few months, uh, you look at that purple line, gold should be at less than $1,000 an ounce. But yet here it is at $1,600, $1,700 an ounce, and either the model just doesn't work anymore and we need to go to a new model, or um, everyone in the gold market has their head in the sand and is not paying attention and gold's ab about to collapse, um, or the gold market is 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 telling us that that scenario of financial repression that I just described is actually going to be happening and that therefore these very high real rates are not going to last very long and therefore uh, gold is going to be seen as a safe haven. Uh, maybe it's all, all of the above, maybe it's a little bit of all of them, uh, but I think there's potentially a, a tell there that uh, that gold is is looking at the future of central banks remaining a very large force in their bond markets and thereby pushing down uh, real rates uh, more so than they otherwise would have been. And that would be a bullish thing for gold. 
Very interesting. Okay, so it, a big question. I know it's unfair to do it at the end, but this is a question about the 60-40, what to do right now, how to sort of make sure you're in balance in some way. They're very tricky markets. Just a couple of pointers you'd leave people with. So I, I think that, you know, my, my glass half full uh, view on that is that, so neither the 40 nor the 60 has worked so far, right? It's been a disaster. The 40 is down, I think, 16%. The 60 is down 26%. Uh, you put a 60-40 together, you're down at least 20% year to date. It's been terrible. Uh, my sense is that going forward, um, at least one or the other is going to work. Now, that problem is, I don't know which one it is, but if, if the Fed over tightens and we get a recession, the 40 is going to work because real rates will come down as the Fed is forced to pivot. And so then the 40 at least starts doing what it should be doing, which is to diversify against the 60 at a time, by the way, that real rates are now also plus 2%. So the 40, I think, is, is, is very, very attractive here, no matter what, because of, on the basis of real yields, but also on the potentiality that it will start becoming insurance again if we get a recession. And if a recession is avoided, then the 60 will work, maybe not the 40. But so the, either way, I think either one or the other is going to work. And that's not as good as both working, but it's better than none working. And so, so that's kind of another glass half full uh, look at, at things today. Fantastic to have your thoughts. We've had a big crowd um, joining us here today. So thanks everyone who's joining. Gary and Tim are great to see you. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.